0: Good evening, and welcome, everyone. I'm Drew Faust, and I'm very grateful to all of you for joining us here today. For many months, we have used the word Paris as a shorthand for the international climate change gathering we are here to discuss today. It's been a word infused with hope for what we might as a world accomplish together in combating the dire threat to our common future that is posed by climate change. Now, since Friday, the word Paris invokes something quite different, an embodiment not of hope, but of tragedy and of cruelty. The murder of hundreds of innocent people there and in Beirut and in other atrocities in recent days represents an attack on the universal values of human decency that bind the peoples of the world together In concert with millions around the globe, we send our sympathy and our solidarity to all those affected. I wanna take this occasion to thank the Harvard teams who have been working around the clock to ensure that members of our community known to be in these locations are safe. And I'm grateful to report that all are accounted for and we will provide any additional support necessary as they seek to return home. But as they do, and as we begin this important discussion on climate change this evening, let us commit to playing our role through education, learning, and discovery. Our role in making Paris a symbol of hope again. Hope for a healthier, sustainable planet and for a world where we live peacefully, caring for each other, for the world we inhabit, and for our common humanity on this earth. May I ask you to join me in a moment of silence and solidarity for all who have perished in these attacks. Thank you. Climate change represents a defining issue for our moment in history, one of the paramount challenges of our time. And our challenge is not just to diagnose the problem and the profound hazards that it represents. Our challenge is to step up and to find effective solutions. That challenge is galvanizing people across Harvard, students, faculty, and staff. Many undergraduates are pursuing a secondary field in energy and environment. (coughs) Doctoral students are taking part in a graduate consortium on energy and environment. Students in business, in design, in divinity, in education, in engineering, in public health. All across the university, students are embracing studies related to climate change and asking how they can help combat it. Our faculty now offer some 240 courses that address aspects of energy, sustainability, and environment. And some 250 faculty have become affiliates of our Center for the Environment. They bring an extraordinary variety of perspectives and ideas, but they share a common will to help solve this problem of enormous complexity and consequence. Last year, we initiated a Climate Change Solutions Fund to propel a number of especially promising efforts, efforts to reduce air pollution in India, to generate low-cost and scalable clean energy through an artificial leaf, to understand market forces affecting biofuels, to understand and eliminate food waste, and many more subjects of this kind. And just this fall, our new Harvard Global Institute launched a major multidisciplinary initiative aimed at climate change, energy security, and sustainable development in China. And a recent new grant from the Rockefeller Foundation is going to enable an ambitious new Planetary Health Alliance meant to build capacity worldwide to address the impact of global change, including climate change, on human health. This is an extraordinary time in which we must make extraordinary progress. Here on our own campus, we continue to pursue aggressive efforts to limit our own greenhouse gas emissions and to model innovative ways to embrace sustainability. And beyond this, universities have the power to convene. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to bring together some of the world's leading experts from the Academy and from beyond, to concentrate our attention on hard problems and to catalyze the search for solutions. So in that spirit, today we're privileged to greet and welcome and gather a remarkable group for the second in a series of presidential panels on climate change. Our focus today is on the role of international cooperation And our immediate interest is the potentially pivotal pivotal gathering that will take place just a few weeks from now, the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. You all have programs with bios for tonight's panelists, so I'm not going to introduce them now, but I do want to say just a few words of thanks. Rick McCullough, Vice Provost for Research, and his colleagues have played a key role in organizing tonight's event as has Carrie Devine, director of the John F. Kennedy Forum. Professor Rob Stevens, one of the world's foremost experts on international climate change agreements, is not only a member of this panel, but has done a great deal to help shape it. So thanks to all of you, all the panelists for being here, all the people who work to make this panel possible. And so, with that, I will turn the podium and the stage over to our moderator. Our moderator is not Candy Crowley, uh, as previously announced. She, unfortunately, is ill and unable to be with us tonight. But Rick McCullough, our Vice Provost, has stepped into the breach, and I want to thank him once again for that. Uh, He is, uh, as I said, Vice Provost, he's also a faculty member in the Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. So with that, let me welcome the panel to the stage, and let me turn the um, honors of presiding over to Rick McCullough. Thank you.
1: Thank you all very much for coming this evening. Uh, we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you uh, about climate change and we have a really distinguished panel of uh, folks with us today uh, focusing on the climate, cha- the climate talks in Paris that are upcoming. And, as you all know, there have been a series of climate talks and there is uh, hope with the new talks that are coming forward. Uh, I'm going to get right to it, and so I'm going to just briefly interdu- introduce our, our panel. You could read about them in the uh, program, but I'm not going to give full bios if that's, if that's okay. We have Daniel Bodansky, who is the Foundation Professor of Law at University of Arizona at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Uh, he is a preeminent authority on climate change and has been very, very involved in negotiations and legal aspects of this for a, a very, very long time. We're very pleased to have him here today. We're very fortunate to have uh, Coral Davenport, uh, who uh, is a writer for the New York Times, who writes on energy and climate change at the, at the New York Times, as I had mentioned. Uh, she has uh, lived in this area, as a graduate of Smith College, and we're happy to welcome her back to this area. We also have uh, Zhou Ji, uh, who's Deputy, Director, of the General, Deputy Ge- Director General of the National Center of Climate Change Strategy and International Cooperation under the National Development Reform Commission in China, China and will be one of the uh, part of a team of negotiators uh, in Paris on behalf of China. And then I run Rob Stavins, uh, who's the Albert Pratt Professor of Business and Government uh, here at the Kennedy School, and uh, has also been introduced by Drew. So with that, I will now, uh, we have some questions that have already been submitted, and I'm going to take the liberty of asking some of those questions uh, to our panel. So let me, let, me, uh, let me ask you a question about these climate talks in Paris, focusing us, fo- focusing us on the significance of the Paris conference. Uh, so the question is, are climate talks in Paris uh, in early December likely to be a truly important step in climate negotiations, and a broader effort to address climate change, are these are these just is this just a sideshow uh, to meaningful action or something in between? I mean, haven't we seen this movie before? And so, uh, with that, uh, let me uh, open it up to the the panel, uh, and uh, maybe Coral, maybe you'll start, start, and sure. then others can jump right in.
2: So, we have seen this movie before. Um, These climate talks have been going on for 20 years. Uh, We saw the first attempt to reach uh, an international climate treaty in 1997 at the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, We saw another attempt to reach something like this in 2009 in Copenhagen. Uh, In both of those cases, uh, we did get some partial measures, but uh, we're here now, climate change clearly hasn't been solved. Um, And in both of those cases, one of the reasons that um, the effort to get an international treaty fell apart is that the world's largest economy and largest historic emitter um, didn't come to the table with any kind of climate policy. So that's one tremendous piece of the puzzle that has changed. For the first time going into you know, this, 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 this third effort to get an international deal, the United States actually has a climate policy on the table. Uh, President Obama has um, these EPA regulations. They've been put in place. They are under legal challenge, um, but at the moment they're they're moving forward. Um, until now, the U.S. has pushed the rest of the world to act with nothing to show for itself at home. That's a, that's a game changer. As is the fact that China, the world's current largest emitter, um, has put forth a plan as well. So that that's a really really big change. Um, your question on, you know will this be significant, will there be success? There are huge hurdles uh, that that still have to be reached before we come out on the other side of what's gonna happen in Paris. One thing that we know is that even in the best case scenario, if we get some kind of global accord that everyone signs onto, um, scientists tell us that the best, you know what we need to do to stop the worst effects of climate change is stop um, average average temperature increase of two degrees Celsius, Best case scenario, this will stop um, probably 2.7 to 3.5 degrees Celsius. It's not going to solve the problem. Um, that's a lot better than where we're going, which looks like 4, 5, 6 degrees Celsius. So you know, maybe we might have enough of a deal that could get us about halfway where we need to get. That's a lot more successful than we've seen in the past. That's
1: great. Rob, you've, you've uh, uh, in the um, living room, uh, this group was, uh, had already had a full discussion of the Climate Change Forum in uh, Paris. I was afraid they were going to run out of things to say, but uh, you expressed optimism about the the talks in Paris. Could you talk about that and why you have optimism?
3: Sure. Well, the reality is that none of us sitting here now, on the panel or in the audience for that matter, can say whether or not the Paris climate talks are ultimately going to be judged to be important. It's going to have to look back on it 5, 10, 20, actually 30 years from now to be able to make that judgment. But what I would say is that there's an opportunity now and there's promise now that I have not experienced in the 20 or so years that I've been following and engaged in the negotiations and in studying the negotiations. And the reason that I say that is that beginning, actually quite a few years ago in Copenhagen, there was a move to a new approach. And we're seeing the culmination of that new approach now. The the old approach was to segregate the world into two groups. There were essentially more or less the OECD countries as they were in 1997. Those were referred to as the Annex I countries and they took on targets and timetables and other countries did not. The problem, however, is that the growth in emissions is not from the OECD countries. Our emissions are significant, but the industrialized countries have emissions that are flat to declining. The growth in emissions is in the large emerging economies. That means they have to be part of the story. And the the structure that is now being put in place that will be realized, we believe, in Paris is one in which all countries are on the same legal framework, submitting what's referred to as their Intended Nationally Determined Contribution, or INDC, which you'll keep hearing about on this panel, I'm sure. And if you look at those, it tells us something very important. Because under the current structure, which is also the previous structure—that's the Kyoto Protocol—14% 1.4, 14% of global emissions are covered, which is essentially the European Union and New Zealand. Under the INDCs that have been submitted as of today, which include not just the United States and Europe, but importantly China and other large emerging economies, we're close to 90% of global emissions being covered. For me, that's a necessary condition for ultimately meaningful action. It's not a sufficient condition. What's also needed is adequate ambition. And as Coral said, the ambition that is on the table now is not sufficient for solving the problem. But it's a, it, to me, it's a breathtaking change from where we were and what the trajectory is now. So my view is that this is a very significant moment both in the history of of the climate negotiations but more importantly it's also a very significant moment in terms of the history of really seriously addressing global climate change
1: so joji i I think that this is a good place for you to jump in and talk about um can china and the united states take the leadership position that they need to in global climate change at these talks is that a reality
4: um uh, actually, we China, uh, we Chinese, uh, we are very cultured to use the wording uh, "leadership." Uh, but anyway, uh, we are taking the action uh, jointly. Uh, so Lima is a, last year in Lima is a very good example. So I remember very clearly uh, in the last last minutes, uh, well we are fa- we were faced with the risk, I mean, two crimes uh, for the car, and uh, then. Uh, uh, the, uh, the language from the joint uh, uh, announcement save the lima so th- th- this is a very uh, immediate example to see how u.s and china can work together uh, to uh, not only on uh, at the uh, uh, bilateral level but also multilateral level uh, but uh, just uh, reflecting uh, the whole picture of the world so just now, Rob uh, mentioned uh, the change, I mean, developed a developing country the, and uh, also the change of the, uh, the emission pictures. Uh, yes, that's true, that's true. But uh, the tricky thing is, uh, well, we see uh, the, the changing picture and we also see something uncha- uh, not changed. And then, so this is why we, we have a big debate, we have some uh, difficulties for, for the negotiation. So anyway, uh, the, the reality is that uh, in the whole world, uh, we have 80% of the population. They still uh, have very low income level and uh, yeah, living in developing countries. Just to take China as an example. So many people would say, oh, China, now you become richer country. But not, not only looking at uh, the statistics, but also if you, you look at the, the share of the population, almost the the half living in rural area and with very low uh, uh, income level so how to address that so and then this become the question why you china you have stronger motivation to take action to make a pledge so actually this is mainly because uh, uh, the stage of the development changed for china so suppose 20 years before so at that time we have only uh, several hundred US dollars per capita for GDP, but now it's close to 8,000. And then we have different agenda, different uh, uh, strategic issue to solve. That, that, that is new normal. That, that means that we have to upgrade our, our economy to, to improve efficiency, to make the development based on efficiency improvement. And then we see uh, very high consistency between climate concern and the development uh, concern. And then the endogenous uh, uh, motivation becomes stronger and stronger. I think this contributes a lot for China's position uh, evolution.
1: So Dan, I'd like you to also comment on the significance of Paris, but uh, also would like you to talk about um, the Europeans have been pushing hard for legally binding obligations in the agreement. and could you comment on how important it is to get that legal framework in the Paris Agreement? Um, and then if we could actually get legal agreement, is that something that's actually reality? So I've sort of asked you too many questions here, but I'll let you uh, take the ones you like.
5: So First of all, let me just uh, pick up a little bit on what Rob said. Yes. So in terms of success and of uh, Paris and why it's uh, important, so I think first of all, as Rob said, much greater participation globally in terms of coverage of Paris. Uh, And then you have a lot of countries putting uh, pledges on the table that uh, don't get us to two degrees but represent a significant advantage over business as usual. But then the third piece that I wanted to add is uh, you need some mechanism to be able to ratchet up ambition over time because the ambition of what's being put on the table now isn't enough. And so one, I think, key aspect of Paris and one of the things that I think we can judge whether it's a success or not is whether it puts in place some kind of meaningful uh, process to ratchet up the ambition of the various contributions over time so that on a regular basis countries come back to the table, assess what they've done, do a stock taking as to whether what has been done is enough, it won't be enough, and then have to come back and update their contributions and and improve, increase their ambition over time. So I think that's a really important part. Uh, In terms of the legal aspect of it, I think it's important to distinguish two different issues. One is whether the agreement, and these are often confused, including I think recently by Secretary Kerry and his remarks in Europe, Uh, One is the issue as to whether or not the agreement is a legal agreement or not, a treaty in international law. And the second is whether particular provisions of the treaty create legal obligations. And these are not the same because treaties can include provisions that are not themselves legal obligations. So I think there's really no question uh, in the negotiations now that the outcome from Paris will be a treaty. Uh, That's now accepted by, I think, all of the different countries uh, involved. Uh, The question is which particular provisions in the Paris Agreement are going to be legally binding or not. I think there's broad agreement that some parts of Paris will be legally binding. The kind of procedural requirements to come forward with an INDC to provide information about what you're doing to implement it, to undergo an international review, those will be legally binding. The big question is whether or not the uh, nationally determined contributions, the pledges countries make about how much they're going to reduce emissions, whether those are legally binding or not. Uh, And that's still an open question. The Europeans are pushing very hard for that to be legally binding and the U.S. is resisting that. I think in part because if the U.S. target were legally binding, it would make it very difficult for President Obama to join the agreement without going to Congress or the Senate. And since Congress and the Senate are unlikely to agree to a Paris Agreement, then it becomes critically important for the U.S. joining that the uh, target not be legally binding. So I think that's where we are. I think the legally binding, even though I'm a law professor, this is against my interest to say, uh, maybe people make too much out of this because whether it's legally binding or not legally binding, um, there's not gonna be strong enforcement provisions. Uh, What's gonna provide, I think, compliance with the agreement is transparency, and that can apply whether or not the target is legally binding or not. So if there's strong provisions uh, about uh, the countries have to come forward with information about what they're doing, that they're subject to review, that their feet are held to the fire, so to speak, uh, to see whether they're actually performing and accomplishing what they say they're going to do. That's going to make a big difference whether or not we call the targets legally binding or not legally binding.
3: I think, can I say that that, that's absolutely key. Um, There's a lot of talk about whether the targets are legally binding, but, you know, international agreements are to some degree voluntary in any case. So, in the case of the Kyoto Protocol when Canada realized that they had ratified it but they realized it would be too costly or too difficult however you'd like to think about it to comply then they withdrew from the Kyoto Protocol. Where the bindingness really comes in is not the international law part it's in terms of the domestic laws and regulations at least in representative democracies that you have put in place in order to implement what your international commitment contribution or statement is. And the whole structure that's now being used, which is this bottom-up essentially pledge and review structure, where the notion is that the INDCs are consistent, that they come from domestic policy, which is certainly the case in the United States. They are consistent with the Clean Power Plan, the energy efficiency standards, the CAFE standards. That's where they come from. That those themselves are legally binding. And in fact, the government is sued by green groups, by environmental advocacy groups if they don't Pursue those as committed to in laws or regulations. So I don't see. I'm agreeing with Dan that I don't see the issue of whether or not those numbers are legally binding as key because they're legally binding where it matters, and that's back home.
1: And and so oh please.
4: Yes. Yeah, so I I would like to support uh, what Rob said. Uh, I I but certainly we have different system between China and the U.S. But, uh, so, but uh, yes, it uh, 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 is also our understanding. So, how to define legally binding? So, uh, in the uh, US, you have the Clean Air Act, etc., and the EPA regulation. And in China, we have, for example, now we are making the 13th five year plan. And uh, the 13th five year plan is a, a sort of a legally binding basis, I mean, uh, to support our pledge in international community. And then we also have uh, other regulations to, 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 to ensure uh, the, uh, the enforcement of our pledge. So in that way, uh, I, I think at least the US and China, we have some legally binding uh, uh, instruments uh, uh, at home. And then these become the very, very strong insurance. I mean, to, to comply with our pledge, made the international community.
2: I'll, I'll add to that as well. Um, a way that I like to think about this is a treaty, an effective treaty in outcome, uh, a, a, an effective outcome in Paris, not a treaty, would combine some elements that would be legally binding under international law and other elements of peer pressure. And a way that I have described this uh, to normal people um, who don't who don't follow this is. Imagine you're a student at school and you have to give a presentation before an assembly of 196 of your peers. Um, You are not legally required to do the assignment and there will be no punishment if you don't do the assignment. But you are, here's what's important, the processes are important. You are legally required to show up at the assembly to get up in front of all your peers and to show whatever it is you have and haven't done. And, and that's kind of the pro and, and so, and then, and then if you show up with nothing, there's no punishment, but you have to show up and, and do that. And that's kind of, you know, so the process of you have to show up, you have to stand up in front, you know, and, and they want to make this as the process is designed to make it as public as possible. All of that will be legally required under pre-existing protocols. And and so the idea is to use the, the sort of these legal mechanisms to create a sense of peer pressure, so that once you finally get to that point, countries will feel this international pressure. If the ma- if the major economies go along with this, then you create a sense of peer pressure where the other economies kind of feel political international pressure. Well, I have to do my homework now. Um, that's I mean that this is this is sort of how we explain it, and that's that's the combination of. Um, what I've heard a lot of environmental lawyers call, you know, the legally binding jujitsu and and peer pressure. Does that
1: work? Do we have other examples of where peer pressure works among countries? So let me say, um,
5: there's been a huge amount of academic research over the last 20 years as to whether legally binding or not makes a difference. And I think the honest answer we can say after 20 years of research is we still don't know because it's extremely hard to actually determine whether it makes a difference. But we do know there's some very, very successful agreements that are not legally binding that have worked as a result of peer pressure. And the one that's usually cited is the Helsinki Accords on Human Rights, which was not a legally binding treaty, but I think most people would say has been more effective than the legally binding treaties on human rights uh, because it established an effective system of peer pressure.
1: So, uh, um, here's a question I'll direct to you, Coral, and then we open it up to others like everybody's opinion on this. So, um, if President Obama wants to sign the U.S. Um, on to this very big ambitious climate change deal in Paris, but Republicans who control Congress are totally opposed to this, uh, it, I mean, will Obama, President Obama be signing on to something that can be overturned by Congress or perhaps the next president? So. Could you comment on that and the importance sure. of the politics, the domestic politics? Behind that?
2: So as the world has gone into forging this, um, the the reason, number one reason this is not a treaty um, is because of the U.S. Congress. Um, the, the negotiators who are working on this understand very clearly. Um, you know, We've seen this before. They signed on to what was supposed to be a treaty in Kyoto, and even before the treaty was signed in Kyoto, the Senate had voted to reject it. Um, there is no treaty that's going to go before the U.S. Senate that the Senate will support. Um, however, so, so, so there, that's, that's, that's the reason for the, the, the legally binding jujitsu, to, to avoid a treaty. Um, at the same time, we also see Republican leaders in Congress led by um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, from a major coal state of Kentucky that absolutely does stand to bear some economic hurt as a result of a treaty that will fundamentally move the global economy away from coal, trying to do whatever he can to send the message that the US is not going to support this. Um, The Congress is is going to pass measures aimed at blocking, undoing, or delaying uh, Obama's EPA regs, which would then nullify the the US position in this. Uh, Obama will veto those, but they'll want to really send a message. I will not be at all surprised if we see some Republican senators showing up in Paris, giving press conferences, saying, we, we do not support this. They really want to. Uh, Mitch McConnell's office has been calling up um, ambassadors and embassies in Washington saying, just so you know, the Congress doesn't support this. Um, so that, that's going to create a dynamic of unease in Paris and understanding that the Congress doesn't stand behind the president on this. A big piece of this will be um, looking at what the next president done, ha, does on this. Um, Hillary Clinton, who worked on these deals, the Secretary of State, has made very clear she'll support and continue to enact it. All of the Republican candidates have said, indicated that they will not support such a deal, um, and if elected, they will do what they can to undo these EPA regulations. And so the dynamics, I think, of 2016 are going to be in the minds of, of the negotiators. Um, that's not just true for the U.S. too. I mean, the strength of this really relies on future administrations, future world leaders to, to implement all of this. But, but the biggest question is going to be, you know, Obama, it's understood that Obama supports what he's signing on to, but, but is, you know, is he going to be backed and is, is he going to have support in the future? And that, that will create unease. Um, we, we don't know the answer to that yet.
3: Others? I think the dynamics that correlate laid out in terms of the Congress vis-a-vis the administration are certainly correct, but we should also keep in mind at the same time that a major part of the domestic uh, portfolio that will achieve the US, INDC, are corporate average fuel economy standards, which are uniformly p- popular, not with economists like myself, by the way, we'd prefer a gasoline tax, but are uniformly popular in the Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike. They're not about to turn those back. It's also contingent upon fuel uh, appliance efficiency standards. They're not about to turn that back. It's also contingent upon California AB 32, which is a huge part of the US economy. And there's no chance of that being turned back. It's also dependent partly upon the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the Northeast. And the Northeast liberal states are not about to retrench. So it's true, as as Coral correctly said, that the Clean Power Plan, which is the new regulation from the administration affecting power plant CO2 emissions, that's going to be subject to litigation. I don't think there's going to be a stay, but our lawyer on the panel should offer the judgment on that. So it probably will be implemented to some degree, pending the stay, or at least plans being developed. It's really questionable whether even that would be overturned. And the reason I say that is not political. It's because those electric utilities, particularly the investor-owned utilities, the IOUs, they're going to go ahead and make some investments. And if you then repeal that after they've made the investments in low-carbon sources, the government's actually creating stranded assets for them. So there will be economic interests that want to keep it going. So although you know, I agree with the dynamics, it's, it's, it's a more nuanced picture, perhaps.
5: Uh, if I could just add one point, uh, focusing on the legal question again. Uh, there's a lot of confusion because the word treaty has a different meaning in US law and international law. So uh, as Coral said, it's not gonna be probably considered a treaty in US law because it won't be sent to the Senate for advice and consent to ratification. But it will be a treaty in international law and I think there is broad agreement among the countries negotiating the Paris That it will be a treaty in international law it will be an internationally legal agreement Uh, so then the question is can the president join that agreement without sending it to the senate and u.s law provides for a variety of avenues by which the u.s can become a party to an international legal agreement to a treaty one of which is sending it to the senate but you can also send it to congress and in many cases the president joins agreements on his own as an executive agreement and so the question then is can Paris be joined as an executive agreement? And that depends on its contents. But I think the kind of agreement that the U.S. is pushing for, which primarily focuses on establishing procedural requirements to come forward with an INDC to be reviewed, that kind of agreement does fall within the president's authority to join on his own without sending it to to
4: the Senate. Yes, please. Uh, Sorry, I'm not an expert for uh, U.S. politics, uh, but uh, I mean, from outside, we do have some concern on the durability of U.S. INDC targets, uh, but certainly uh, in the process of multilateral negotiation. So we, we, we understand there are some uh, problems, uh, I mean, domestically in U.S. And then uh, uh, the negotiators, we, we are considering some very special uh, legal arrangement say, uh, to take some legal firm to put uh, INDC targets uh, outside the uh, the core agreement with some uh, weaker decision by, by the conference of the parties, and uh, in that way we, we 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 try to work together with the White House, to, I mean to keep the uh, 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 the INDC targets. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, to make it uh, I mean uh, not necessary. To, to be ratified by the congress but even though uh, uh, these can can works, uh, we we continue to have the uh, the concern on the of the targets so given the, the upcoming election and uh, given the uh, we uh, it, it, it's my feeling it's very complicating i mean to understand the us politics uh, how uh, how how to to i, I mean to,
5: yeah. We feel the same way about <laughs> it. <right? laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway,
4: uh, this is a sort of concern. Yeah, We, we do want to see uh, the, uh, the plan, the, the target can be uh, uh, implemented, no, ma- no matter who will be the, the president. So before we
1: uh, open it up to our audience, um, I, there were two topics I wanted to cover. It looks like I'm only going to have a chance to cover one but I'll, ask, I'll, ask, I'll mention the question that I didn't get a chance to answer, and if you get a chance to weave that one in, that would be great. Interested in your thoughts on India uh, and their, um, uh, their intentions, or what uh, you think their intentions may be for the talks. And, uh, but the question is, what does success look like? And then we'll open it up for our, our, our uh, audience
2: India's here. India a million-dollar question. Um, India was one of the very last countries to put forth their INDC, it was a fascinating document. It started with references. They submitted it on Gandhi's birthday. um, And then the second graph had to do with yoga. And I was reading and reading and reading on deadline before I could find what actually the numbers of their INDC were. And I didn't get till the very end until I realized their INDC actually says that they will triple their emissions. Um, However, that rate of, of emission increase is lower then the rate of, of emission increase would be with with no action so that that kind of that is, that is action from India they are participating I think that Modi and Obama are personal friends they are both as leaders interested in in engaging and getting some kind of agreement that that they both that makes them both look good um, Modi is so difficult to understand but but it is also, it's clear that he wants to get some kind of agreement with Obama. It's also clear because he says it all the time, Modi's number one um, priority, domestic priority, is to get electricity to poor people, no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes. And if that means building, you know, millions of megawatts of cheap new coal plants to to get electricity to poor people and, and triple the emissions at that rate, then that's what they'll do. What they want, is some kind of deal with the US where they can get access to a lot of clean energy technology that can both give them the technology, both give the, the electricity, um, and lower the emissions rates. And, and I think that that is very much on the table, and, and both, both sides are interested in it. Um, I think from India, we will see a very, very hardline push. Um, we will see a strong sense of pushing back at the idea that, um, you know, you got to develop, you you know, the rest of the developed world, you know, kind of has this economy where you all have, can turn on the lights and drive your cars and we've got to get this. But at the end of the day, I think you will see some transitioning, some shifting, especially if they can get a good deal out of the U.S.
1: So we have just a few minutes left. Uh, could we get uh, some of you to comment on what success looks like? before we open it up to the
3: audience. I'm happy to do that. I want to first pick up, if I may, on of course, what anything you want. said. Because it, you have it's, three minutes. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> there's a very important principle, and Rick, if you came with us, the four of us are all going to be in Paris the week after next, and if you came with us and you walked into the plenary hall and listened to the negotiations, I guarantee that within the first two minutes, you would hear a very special phrase, uh, and that has to do with the fact that it's a global commons problem We're all in it together, but we're at different stages of economic development. Common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. That is part of the framework convention under which all of these negotiations are taking part. The agreement that will be reached in Paris does not reject that. It does not repeal that. It's working under it. So the notion is we have to all be involved, but we don't have to be involved in the same way. And I'm not going to say, I'm not saying this because is sitting next to me, if he were not here, if there was no one from China, I would say the exact same thing, that it's breathtaking the changes that have taken place coming out of China and the joint U.S. announcements twice now. And what we're seeing is there's a big difference between the U.S. We've heard complaints where they're talking about peaking their admissions in 2030 and we're talking about reducing immediately relative to 2000, that's common but differentiated responsibilities. And India, which is in a very different state of economic development than China is, that's another common but differentiated responsibilities. That's the challenge going forward, and to ignore that, to ignore the differences in stage of economic development and to think we would all push together exactly the same would be politically infeasible, it would be
4: unethical, and it's not going to happen. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, so I, I, I just want to, to echo uh, what Rob said, I mean, on uh, CBDR, uh, actually, this is extremely important for China's position and also for, I think for most of the developing countries and uh, there have been a very popular opinion say, oh, CPDR is something out of date uh, uh, that now uh, doesn't reflect uh, the, the reality because in the past 20 years, the world changed a lot. But uh, it's my understanding. Uh, so the biggest uh, success between China and the US especially reflecting in the reflected in the joint announcement is the CBDR. So these provide for very solid basis, the political, ethic, and the legal basis for not only bilateral agreement, but also multilateral. So uh, uh, Rob just elaborated how to interpret the CBDR in the new circumstances. I I I shared the opinion but would like to to add something more. So in my view, CBDR, uh, it derived from the, at least the four pillars. One is the cumulative emission, and we also call it the responsibility. But certainly I know there has been a, a big debate on that. And especially US and China, we have a, a, lot of, a, a long debate on that. But finally, we found a political solution for that. So that means we, also, uh, uh, we are also aware of other pillars to support cbdr that's what uh, rob just just now uh, uh, rob mentioned uh stage of the development uh, so india china but certainly by the way uh, although uh, china is different from india but uh, i would say china and india are both uh, both of the two countries are developing country so so i this reminds me uh, the formal uh, uh, State uh, Secretary, uh, uh, Madam uh, Hillary Clinton, said China uh, it never uh, Chad. That, that Chad is the uh, least developed country in Africa. Yes, I, I think that's right. That, that's a fact. But I would like to add another wording. China is, is neither the United States and the Europe. So this might be the, uh, the correct description. Uh, I, I mean, uh, where China is. So this is also applied to many other developing countries. So uh, having said that uh, stage of the development and also uh, capability and then national circumstances, the four pillars can support CBDR. But certainly uh, in theoretical level, uh, we can debate. So we debate for a long time, we certainly will. Uh, but, but we, we become the very close friends after the, the debate. So I think this is also applied to uh, U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and uh, we finally, so why we say uh, Paris is different from Copenhagen? So because we found the political solution here. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we uh, uh, respect CBDR, but, uh, but uh, CBDR doesn't mean inaction for developing countries. So uh, when we emphasize the differentiation, never forget the common so 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 china is an example so now we we share more and more feelings and the, the values on the common responsibility while we recognize the differentiation so so that means that the convention will continue to be the the the, basis, the political basis for international for multilateral agreement thank you uh, so
2: one quick sentence on quick. what success looks like um, an accord that uh, commits every country to enacting the INDCs that they have put forward and also legally binds them to come back every five years mm-hmm. and put forth something that's even stronger and also includes very strong provisions for transparency and verification. That's what success Thank looks you like. so much. Harder said than done. Thank you. Those, so
3: those three will all be achieved. Okay. I had a couple of others that won't be, but yeah.
1: So <laughs> you, you all will get another chance to answer some questions from the audience. Let me, uh, you are in the Institute of Politics, and um, there are ground rules for as- asking questions at the Institute of Politics, and I'm required to read those. All questioners must identify themselves. One brief question per person. Uh, we uh, ask you not to give speeches. Uh, Please end your question with a question mark. Uh, So if you could please note that there are four stationary microphones, uh, two on the first floor and then two in the uh, box level uh, up above. So with that, we'll uh, open it up uh, for questions for our panel. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Falco Petzold. I'm a fellow with the Initiative for Responsive Investment here at the Kennedy School. And I work with extremely wealthy families that want to integrate sustainability topics more actively in their investment decisions. And my question to the panel is In what way do you see outcomes out of Paris that would actually make a significant change in how capital is allocated in financial markets and how institutional investors like pension funds and endowments or private investors like wealthy private investors allocate their capital more in the interest of tackling climate change? Thank you.
3: So I'll I'll take a stab at that. Uh, In terms of what will come out of Paris and how it will affect what you're describing, is that Paris will put in place these INDCs that then individual countries will seek to implement in a variety of ways. Some countries will use perhaps something equivalent to a carbon tax. A number of countries, including the United States uh, and Europe, obviously, will be using cap-and-trade mechanisms. With those two policies, there is an explicit price on carbon, if you will. Other countries will use a technology standard or a performance standard, and in economic terms, that means there will be a shadow price on carbon with those. With all of those effects from any of those policies, it is going to make it relatively more costly to, for example, generate electricity with coal, compared to oil, compared to natural gas, compared to renewables and nuclear power, which are zero. In some cases, that's going to result in stranded assets at the extreme, but probably not immediately. But those differences in demand for energy from different sources are then going to play out in terms of where there are incentives to build new capacity. So, for example, in the United States, for reasons that are not because of climate policy, we're not building more coal fired power plants. We're expanding the natural gas fleet very rapidly because of the low price of natural gas. Those kind of effects would be accentuated by the differential pricing
4: or shadow pricing on the different fuels. Yeah, so uh, actually, uh, I, I do not believe the Perry Agreement will give a direct uh, signal to capital investment, but uh, give a very strong background. Uh, I mean, some signal, political signal to, uh, to country and then country to implement their INDC targets the way d- different uh, uh, domains, for example, uh, non-fossil fuel uh, and also efficiency improvement in specific sectors here. I would like to emphasize the uh, transport and the building sector uh, as a matter of a long uh, time span for their uh, cycle, for their cycle, and this is especially important for China and other developing countries uh, underway, uh, I mean for urbanization. So suppose we invest a lot in urban infrastructure, and but we, are, uh, we will be locked in with high carbon, Uh, Urban uh, planning or technologies, so that will be some trouble in the future, I mean, to keep very high trajectory of emission. And then these can be translated to some standards uh, for investment uh, in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, 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 times of energy, etc., etc. So we are working very hard to reflect those requirements and the standards and the norms in the capital investment, especially in infrastructure domain.
1: Thank you very much. Um, question number here.
4: Uh, yeah, my name is Andrew Kingsbury. I go to the Extension School,
6: and my question is about the deniers. So uh, people don't believe in the science. Some people believe they'll be economically hurt, like Kentucky, as you mentioned. So how do you convince the climate change deniers here in the United States and around the world that might, uh, might hurt uh, the legislative process and, and other aspects of the process.
2: Uh, there have been some really interesting studies on this. Um, I think it was Pew recently came out uh, with a global analysis um, of where uh, climate change, the, the idea of, esta- of denying the established science of climate change, is, is present around the world. Um, and it's really one place, and that's the United States. Repo- it's the conservative branch of the United States Republican Party. You don't see, you see a little bit of this in Australia. You see a little bit of in Canada. Um, but, but the place where it's sort of part of the, uh, uh, still, still a part of the mainstream political debate um, is here. And the I write about this all the time. Um, one of the ways in which this is changing Um, within the Republican Party is the the engagement of of money. Um, For one thing, we see a lot of major corporations who are also big Republican donors absolutely recognizing that they can't run away from basic facts and basic economics and basic science. Um, All of the big five oil companies now have shadow carbon pricing. Um, Many Fortune 500 companies now have shadow carbon pricing and are preparing and planning for a future that involves climate change. Um, it becomes, and you also have a lot of major political donors um, deciding that this is going to be, they're going to, they're, this is going to be a political donor issue. And so you have you know, a really interesting situation if you trace the rhetoric of political climate denying, um, going from it sort of being okay and being electable to, to say, well, this problem isn't real and it doesn't exist to talking about, well, the, the, economic, the economic costs of these policies are, you know, are unacceptable, um, you start to see, and polling has shown this, it becomes a political liability to be seen as a science denier. Um, we did a poll uh, earlier this year finding that, in fact, the majority of Republicans, and especially if you look at um, younger Republicans and independent voters, accept the established science of climate change um, it's, it tends to be um, older white conservative voters who, um, who will form the, the base you know, of the Republican primary voters but not of the general um, that, that are comfortable with that. But it becomes associated in the minds, especially of independent voters, with being out of touch, um, you know, sort of like denying evolution, um, donors and PACs and corporations, putting money kind of into that to making it a political liability are, are moving it so the political system is kind of doing doing that work and I think we will see this play out in the GOP over it won't finish this cycle, but I would say in two or three cycles it will it, it's going the same course as I think the debate over gay marriage and immigration uh, money and politics are <laughs> sadly I think what's going to and and, and, and I, I think also kind of the rise of younger voters who have grown up saying well this isn't you know this is crazy of course of course this is true I think Again, two, two cycles
3: out, we'll see the change. Well, it, it's very. I'm sorry, Dan, no, go I'd ahead.
5: I'd like to just add one point to that, which is there's been some very interesting work about the psychology of uh, climate deniers. And uh, interestingly, providing more scientific information doesn't convince them. It's like a good uh, but, but cultural factors do. And so things like the papal encyclical, which come at the climate issue from a very different direction and appeal to people who might not otherwise
3: have been that engaged in the issue, I think can make a big difference. Yeah, what I was going to add to it is that um, what I find very sad, particularly as someone who works in a university and whose job is to carry out research to teach, is to think about the fact that what Dan just said is absolutely correct. Um, climate change has for reasons, in my opinion, which have nothing to do with climate change, but have to do with polarized politics and climate change is to some degree collateral damage in an ideological war, that climate change discussions have become much like discussions about abortion in the United States and from what I can see more information about the process of human reproduction and gestation is not going to move anyone from one side to the other either direction because it's ideological it's moral it's ethical however you want to think of it that may to some degree be appropriate in that case I think it's not appropriate in the case of climate change because climate change is fundamentally a scientific economic and therefore political problem, but it's therefore discouraging to recognize that because it has become polarized, it is ideological, that more information, more learning doesn't necessarily move people as fast as we would like. But the good news about it is something that, that Coral touched on, and that is I think that we overestimate how problematic is the climate skepticism, I'll refer to it, in the Republican Party because we watch television and we watch the the debates among the candidates and the debates among the candidates are shaped by the electorates in the Republican primaries and the electorate the people that actually show up to vote are the most conservative elements of the Republican Party not because Republicans are bad because Republicans are like everyone else those voters who are most passionate just like Liberal Democrats are the ones who show up at the polls, and we have gerrymandering of districts as a result of a constitutional guarantee of that. And so we have this situation in which we have a set of candidates of one of the parties who may sound like almost all of them climate skeptics, but the Republican vote in the general election does not uh, reflect that.
1: Thank you very much for your question. I'm gonna move on to the next question. If you don't mind, just wanna make sure I get as many questions as possible. Yes, up here.
6: Yeah, hi, my name is Rory. I'm from the School of Public Health. Um, So social movements on campus and internationally have uh, really lifted up the international attention being placed on uh, fossil fuel divestment as a tactic to impact uh, uh, climate change. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on the Paris talks and specifically a failed Paris talks, um,
3: how that will impact these social movements. Well I'll, I'll grab at that. Um, <laughs> I don't first of all, I don't think the Paris talks are going to fail, at least the way we would, I think we we would define success, which is you know, eighty to ninety percent of countries participating, there being transparency, there being five-year ratcheting up, take those three elements. I think you can anticipate success. So let me first be positive in that regard. In terms of how it relates to the divestment movement and how you know people, young people, other people will react to what comes out of Paris. I can tell you what my hope is, but I can't offer this a prediction because it's not I don't have sufficient information about the people in the divestment community, and that is they would begin to focus more on policies that would make a real difference, as opposed to policies that make us feel good or look good, but don't really do something about the problem. And from everyone I've spoken with, including many people in the investment community, because I've, I've written about it and so I've engaged in conversations with them about it, that they themselves would say, well, it's not going to financially affect the fossil fuel firm. So that's, there's more or less pretty complete agreement. Rather, it is of symbolic value. But my concern which is how it ties in with Paris and doing something that matters, is that with symbolic actions, sometimes we can fool ourselves into doing, thinking we're doing something about a problem when we're not, to thinking that the university is doing something about it. And that's problematic. Now, it could, other, it could also be, let me admit that in certain cases, we would say, well, there's a place for symbolic actions. If there's a moral crusade, then the symbolic actions matter but for precisely the reasons I just mentioned to this other gentleman, F- characterizing climate change, in my opinion, as a moral crusade plays into the political polarization we have in Washington. The answers to this problem are gonna be at the center. They're not gonna be at the two extremes and by driving the street extremes about. So I'll just finish by saying that on this issue of divestment, and I really, I think I really do understand and I really appreciate the emotion and the caring that people have who are interested in it. Let's recognize that the way universities affect the world, including major research universities like this one, is through our products, our research, our teaching, and our direct outreach to policymakers. It's how we've made a difference on other problems. And I think it's how we're going to make a difference on this one.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the question, would you like to add in? Just to add, uh, so Some I guess I think I can yes. say with pretty
5: strong confidence, first of all, that Paris will be a success, at least as I define success, which is it'll move the ball forward significantly. Uh, it already has done so, it's already a success in that the 150 countries that have had INDCs, uh, what they've pledged represents a significant improvement over business as usual. But then secondly, I think I can say with equal confidence, it's not gonna be enough. So I guess I would say post Paris, uh, we should be attacking climate change on as many fronts as possible. So the international negotiations are important, but that doesn't mean we can say that's enough. Uh, We need to be approaching climate change through as many different uh, ways as possible, technology, uh, religion, and so forth and so on. So I think uh, I would say an all-hands-on-deck approach is appropriate, Uh, all approaches on deck uh, is is appropriate, because uh, the international negotiations, I think, are really important are gonna be doing a lot, but they're not gonna be
4: enough in my view. xiu Xi? Yeah, so I, I would emphasize, um, I actually just take China as an example. Uh, no matter we will have Paris agreement or not, or not, we will stick to the direction, to low carbon direction, because this is not because of uh, uh, I mean external pressure. This is our own endogenous motivation. So otherwise, we cannot develop the further. And uh, I think we should set up the vision, a shared vision. So anyway, the future of the world will be totally different from the past. That's low carbon, that's green, that's environmentally friendly. And uh, coming back to uh, another gentleman's question, uh, and I I would say uh, knowledge, education, communication is very, very important to the uh, uh, deniers. And uh, also, this is also the case in China. So we we should show up, I mean the co-benefit, I mean more job opportunity and also public health and also uh, local air quality. So all of those uh, convince ourselves we have to do, we have to move forward for low carbon development, no way out, uh, I mean for better human development. So this is our uh, vision and this is the basis for China, US and other, the rest of the world to work together, but certainly weighing the success of a Paris Agreement, we can do better, we can do quicker.
1: Thank you so much, thank you for the question, up here.
6: Hi, uh, my name is Ben Frana, I'm a, a doctoral student in applied physics and a research fellow here at the Belfer Center too. Um, and, and I also want to ask about what institutions like universities can do to push the ball forward um, on climate change. Uh, you know, we have the divestment movement um, and, and that is getting very large. That's some 500 institutions that have divested so far and growing. Um, and so we'll see if that has an effect on the Paris talks. But broader than that, beyond that, we have a lot of policy ideas. We have researchers doing research. But how can the university and other institutions of its stature actually push things forward, not? just in the policy realm, not just in the scientific realm, but in the political realm, which I, I think we all understand uh, has to be done.
1: That's a great question and we have, uh, we're so fortunate to have two people from universities that are playing a role in the talks in Paris and so maybe both of them could, could weigh in on where your role has been and what influence you can have.
3: Well, so I'll, I'll give you one example that since you're with the Belfer Center, you might be you know, familiar with, I don't know. so. At Harvard, we have an entity of uh, a project for many years now, the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. And it's, it, although it's called Harvard, it involves research initiatives from uh, China, India, Japan, Australia, United States, Europe, Argentina, uh, 75 research initiatives all looking at ways of advancing climate change initiatives, mainly in the international sphere, but also domestically within those countries. But to get to the heart of your question, which you, which you correctly stated, it's ultimately a political problem. Right? So what we do is that we don't just carry out our research. We do what I would call quintessentially Kennedy School. And maybe it's quintessentially Harvard. That we don't stop with the research, and we don't mm-hmm. stop only with the teaching of students uh, at the university, but we make sure that we're communicating that on a two-way street with policymakers and with people in private industry. So, For example, when we're at the talks, which will be in Paris, we'll spend 10 days there at the talks, not only making a series of presentations, but meeting with the negotiating team, negotiating team after negotiating team, because they'll want to meet with us and they'll request it because they know we'll be honest brokers about communicating research, not pushing a policy agenda. In other words, being policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. That's a way that a major research university, based upon research, Viewing teaching at its mission can do what you said, which I agree with, being a Kennedy School faculty member, and that's outreach directly to the body politic, as well as I would add, private industry.
5: yeah Yes. Yeah, so let me just add. Uh, we do. I do largely the same kind of thing that Rob described, um, uh, and I would say Arizona State University, which is actually my affiliation, not a- University yeah, of Arizona. Yeah. So I realized that, so that as a. The other university sorry. down the road. <laughs> Arizona State. Uh, so Want to make sure the president of my university heard that. So uh, it's also very focused on on, uh, knowledge generation, but then also trying to apply that knowledge to try to figure out solutions and then try to communicate those solutions to uh, people in uh, government, uh, business and so forth. So I spend a lot of my time um, uh, doing research on the climate change issue, but then a a lot of what I do is do briefings for uh, negotiators, uh, business leaders and so forth about the results of the research, about what a Paris Agreement might look like, about how the U.S. might be able to join a Paris Agreement. So it's—I think—it's the role of the universities is largely its knowledge generation and education, but then taking it the next step and trying to then communicate it to relevant. So, so I'm
1: supposed to a- ask one question, but I'm going to take one more question. I do apologize to everyone else that would like to ask Rick, a question. We're running I, out of time because I, so I know you, you're your too your modest. Question, if I can get these guys to give you a chance,
3: you're too modest. Mentioned mention it, but something, um, and that fellow is gone who raised the question, there you are, raised that question about what Harvard could do. Rick is actually a great example of what Har- Harvard can do as a result of an initiative, and I'm not saying it because she's here, of President Faust, and that's the Climate Change Solutions Fund, which notice in the word, it's got the solutions. It's not climate change, oh, it's an interesting problem fund. It's the Climate Change Solutions Fund, and we've got, I don't know, maybe I can't say publicly how many applications there are, but from faculty and I think PhD students across the university, huge number of applications that you'll be going through, and they're remarkable because they're focused not just on research, but research that can be implemented. Which is exactly that. I think it's a great illustration. You wouldn't mention it because
1: it's thank your you. baby.
3: But uh, thank you
1: for mentioning that. We're going to take one last question, and uh, and then we're going to have very brief response, and then we're going to be finished up here. Please.
7: Thank you. My name is Kara Kaufman and I'm with an NGO based here in Boston called Corporate Accountability International. So perhaps unsurprisingly, my question is about the role of corporations and the private sector at the negotiations in Paris. Just to give one or two sentences of context, I know I was surprised to learn that Paris actually incorporates a set of corporate sponsors, some of whom actually have financial connections to the fossil fuel industry in a moment that we're currently in with headlines running in every paper about ExxonMobil, knowing about the effects of greenhouse gases on climate change since even the 1970s, and perhaps not being forthcoming. What do you all see as the role of corporations in these negotiations and or potential conflicts of interest?
3: Great so question. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon of the United Nations Uh, changed the playing field in the international negotiations with regards to the private sector to major corporations, to the major international uh, corporations. And he did that in the annual festivities that take place, the General Assembly uh, in September. He did it in September, a year past now, was where it started when he brought in uh, the corporate sector Said I want to hear from you. What you want to do? What's your role? And they had a whole series of sessions and came up with a joint statement, as you probably know, with regards to carbon pricing. And then that was revisited this year by a number of oil companies, not including U.S. oil companies, but the you know the large multinational companies that are based outside of the United States on carbon pricing. The result of that is that there will be a substantial increase in the number of corporate representatives at the talks. now they're not going to be inside in the negotiations because they're not on a country team, but in terms of making presentations, discussions and the like. But those that are there are not the ones that are by any means trying to subvert it. These are the ones that are actually very, very progressive. That's the corporate participation. That said, from my perspective as an economist, as an environmental economist, the role that I see that corporations should be taking is to be complying with the letter and spirit of the laws and the jurisdictions in which they operate. And the responsibility is to the governments to put in place the policies, and I would favor carbon pricing policies, but the policies which will provide incentives or requirements for the corporations to take the action we want to work through government, our democratically
4: elected government. Georgie, I just yes, want to, uh, for your information, to give you two uh, immediate cases. One is uh, so we, will, we are negotiating a specific decision addressing non state uh, actors, uh, I mean, especially for business, uh, I mean, for Workstream 2 of the, the decision uh, of the uh, Durban platform. So we are almost uh, uh, um, uh, 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 approaching. Uh, the, the final agreement for these very specific articles, the other example is uh, last uh, last week, I met uh, Mr. Bill Gates in Beijing and uh, he uh, tried, he had had tried to to engage a couple of uh, national, multinational uh, companies uh, to to make the initial donation maybe at the scale of uh, a billion or so, some money like that and meanwhile to 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 persuade major economy government to enhance their uh, public budget for R&D. And I I, I know some of the countries have given very positive response to that. And uh, then uh, those money will come together for the clean technology development. And those are the two uh, examples to to see how private and the public uh, sectors can work together. Thank you so much. But with that, I would
1: like to conclude this forum. And I thank the audience so much. This is a wonderful turnout. And we just so appreciate the interest in this topic. And I think we're just so delighted to have these this, these panelists who are not only going to participate and influence, I hope, the climate policy in Paris, and those who are going to translate it and tell us about what really happened there and influence our opinions on the way that we should think. I think these folks are at the forefront of what's happening in the world on this topic. And so we're just so delighted to have all of you take the time to participate. So with that, uh, we should thank our uh, panelists.